So if I only if I only relate to myself from that animalistic place, then I end up feeling very empty and very um, nearly worthless. I would say that's an extreme thing to say, but it, it, I feel on some level worthless because I know on some level I'm worth so much more than that, and I could be, I could be so much more than that, right? And one of the things I see the most around in this this time and age and generation that we live in is this like being busy constantly, but not feeling like I have purpose and I'm meaningful and I'm making a difference and I'm doing something significant and, right? I can just, we can fill up our day so easily by not really doing much or living in reaction to things all the time, right? The dings and the dongs and this and the Facebook and, and you could be on YouTube and you just so much exciting stuff to fill up your day with that unless you choose to, to go in a certain direction, you can just like be passively let along. It's just much, much harder today to do that, to, to, to be more, constructive with your day than it was say maybe even 10 years ago which isn't that long ago mm. I, I remember even myself 10 years ago so being selfless is considered like one of the most common character traits we could say of God right God is unconditionally giving and loving all day long he's, he's providing sustenance and things to happen in the world so to speak even for people doing terribly terrible bad things even things people who are not doing sort of moral uh, acts Right, God's supporting them. He's giving them food and breathing and air and whatever. Like there's a constant sustenance going on in the world, and that is literally the role of motherhood. Literally, I mean, it's unbelievable that you see that God puts into us a, a deep drive to want to be mothering, and then at the same time says, "Okay, you got. I'm going to give you this cute little baby that's going to be so cute that you're not going to be able to kill it even when you're really annoyed." <laughs> And it's going to really push every single button in you, right? Until you, you cannot handle it anymore. And it's going to make you sleep deprived. And you're not going to have a life. And you're going to be totally like enslaved to this baby. And you just can't help it but love it. Because I'm going to put that into you too. And I'm going to force you to overcome your selfishness and your self-absorption in order to care for this baby. It's literally brilliant. It's a brilliant strategy. Right? To force us to come into our potential. Now, you can, of course, become selfless in many other ways. There's no question. It's just that's a particularly powerful way that is like day and night, day and night. There was a brilliant ad. Oh, my gosh. Hallmark. Go onto YouTube and Google and, and search Hallmark ad Mother's Day. And they did a Mother's Day ad where they made a job advert and put it in the paper for real. And they advertised like what sort of job. And they had people sign up for Skype interviews. And they went through the whole job description of a mother without saying it's a mother. And they said, no, there's no vacation. No, I'm sorry. The job could be 24-7. And they're like, no, you hardly get to sit. It's mostly standing. And and you see these people, they're like, really? What sort of job is that? Like, and then, and then it's, it's, yeah, it's total slavery, like horrendous torture. You'd sue them. Like, it's just, it's just like horrendous. And at the end they're like, I don't, I don't think so. No, like, they just totally like, and they're like, what, what job is this? And it's like a mother. And you hear them all go, a mother, a mother. And they're like, oh. And then, and then they say, I want to call my mum. And so you see them calling their mum. They keep the, the film rolling. It's the best ad. You gotta, you gotta Google it. Anyway, but it's literally this idea, right, of being, ha- of being completely selfless, and that on some level, that selflessness, as hard and painful as it is, actualize it, our potential, right? On some level, becoming selfless. Now, that's not enough because we each have a unique, we each have a unique uh, purpose in this life, right? All of us have a unique gift, unique contribution to make. Our souls have a unique tikkun, it means correction. 
So you each, each person has a unique tikkun, which is a correction, and also every person has a unique contribution to give to the world around you. It doesn't have to be in the biggest world possible, but it could just be in your immediate world, right? Of something that you can contribute to your environment, your community that you have unique to give. And your job, our job, is to find out what those two things are, right? What is the thing I'm here to correct about myself? And when you do it, and when you start to triumph over it, there is no greater satisfaction or fulfillment. There is none. Because on some level, you know that you're completing something deep that you needed to correct, right? So I once asked my rabbi, Roshalom Kamenetsky, it's not fair. Like, none of us really know our tikkun. Like, we're not told, by the way, this lifetime, you have to complete this, right? I would do it if you told me what it was. So tell how do I know what it is? So he says, oh, the Gomorrah says there's, there, there's hints. And I'm like, what's the hint? And he says, one of the hints is there's an area that you have a greater desire for than others, animalistic desire. It could be if it's food, comfort, fame, status, um, money. It could be um, like jealousy. It could be um, sexuality, like inappropriate sexuality. It could be, um, it could be like any, any physical desire, right? Any kind of physical desire um, that's unhealthy, that you have more, you, everyone has at least one desire that's stronger than the others in, in, in life, right? That you have a tendency to, to find something harder to resist in, in those kind of desires, right? Um, and that becomes then your challenge. That's one of your hints that you, you have to correct, right? And it's usually something that maybe got you in trouble over, over your lifetime, you know, gets you a little bit into messes and challenges and you have to get out of them or things are really hard. For some people, it's food and dieting. For other people, it's, it's, um, it's always needing to shop and be comfortable or for other people, it's uh, fame, like always getting credit, sort of arrogance, right? Always, having, always needing the status of things. Um, and, um, and with every... With every aspect of this, there's also a positive. You know, there's always, every, every negative challenge we have, is also a, there's also a strength to the same exact quality. So, um, so, you know, someone who struggles with arrogance will typically be arrogant for good reason, usually. Usually good reason unless they're really wounded. But arrogance, you know, they're usually very smart or they're usually very beautiful or they're usually very... There's, you usually do have an extra dose of something to be arrogant about, right? It's not for nothing usually, but... But at the same time, it's not good to be arrogant. It's not good for your character. It's a low, it's a low level of operating. So that's one thing he said. He said, notice what your desires are that are more than the others for you. Like, what's your weakness, right? What's your weak point that you always keep getting hooked into, right? Or can't say no to? That's, that's a really, really important one. That's number one. Number two, he said, is as far, he said, what do you keep accidentally messing up on? might not be the same area of desire, but there's something in life that you do that you constantly go, oh, I can't believe I did that again. Or I can't believe I'm in this situation again. Or I can't believe I've attracted that person again, that type of person, right? There's a deep lesson in, in that for us. If you keep finding yourself in the same kind of environments, relationships, situations, right, over and over again, or struggles, or I can't believe I have to make this kind of decision again. I can't believe... You see it coming up over, why just you and not the next person? Because you're meant to correct something. So until we learn it, God will keep putting it in your face, right, over and over. And we keep thinking, oh, I can't believe this, not again. I can't believe life's doing this to me or God's doing this to me, right? 
but it's because there's something there to learn. So when you bring a sense of consciousness to, to it, it's much easier to get it right, number one, because when you know that you're in a test or a challenge that you're meant to correct, you have a greater chance of passing it, right? If you know, oh, I know what this is. This is, I know what this is, I'm in a test, right? You have much more likelihood of passing it if you go, okay, sometimes I get stubborn, like, I'm not gonna fail this one. Like, once you know you're in it. But if you don't really know and you keep dismissing and justifying, so then it's easier just to ignore it and overlook it and just keep stumbling along the same way. Yeah? What if you're very self-aware, but it just takes time? It does take time. This is a lifelong thing. The tikkun is a lifelong thing. So, but yeah. what after, if you correct that one thing, then... There's layers and layers and layers. We're like an onion. Okay. So, like, you think you corrected it, and you'll come around again on a more subtle level, and you're like, oh, I, I thought I was done with this. And then you see it like God's refining you deeper and deeper and deeper. In fact, there's a certain number, and I don't know if this is the same for all of us through our lifetime, but there is a certain number that gets you to the core, core, core essence. Does anyone know the number? In, in, huh? It's a hint. We just came through a holiday that had the number. Because God wanted... Huh? Because uh -uh. God wanted to get. To, okay, I'm going to keep going with the hint. Yes. Why ten? Why? How, how is that connected to the essence? So therefore, God was trying to show. Yes. Every plague got down to the essence of the Egyptians to show them that God was really running the show. So that, because you can, you can be aware of something when you say I'm emotionally aware, but that awareness might only go so deep. And deeper down, you're not really letting it in. So it takes 10 levels to get down to the core essence of a person, to change something permanently. Oh, in general you're saying? In general. Oh. How do we know this? Because Avraham was put through 10 tests. Avraham was put through 10 tests in order to solidify his imunah, his faith in God. Because that 10 got to his core as well. So there's something special about 10. I don't know if that means we go through 10 tests or if we go through 10 years or how it works for us. But there is something there about 10 to get back to the essence. So, but the answer to your question is you can become aware of something and correct it at a certain level. And then Hashem will bring it deeper and deeper until you refine it to, to the point where, it, usually to the point where you would never ever find yourself back in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, if it's something that like is a challenge, like, I don't know if this is an example, but I'm the kind of person, I'm very forgetful, and I leave things behind a lot. Like, if I'm packing, mm -hmm. or if I'm just leaving my apartment for work in the morning, it's like, oh, I forgot my keys, and mm -hmm. now I locked myself out of my apartment, which I've done. Um, so, like, that, that's the kind of situation that I'm like, I have that every day, like, mm -hmm. all the time. I just have to be constantly so aware, so focused of, like, and it drives me crazy because I'm like, it takes me like five minutes to leave my apartment. I'm like, okay, do I have my keys? Do I have this? Do I have this? Do I have this? I'm like, I'm like, what are the steps that... You put a note like by the door. I should. I should, I should. But then in the same place every time. Yeah. yeah. I do. I do. Yeah. It's like your, your mind is all about to like reset to take whatever you need. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm like, I also, I just came back from like Passover. I was in, I was in Maryland. That's where I'm from. And I like... Um, I left like my unmask there, and I can't sleep with that. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very dependent on my unmask. Um, 
And I'm like, I even thought the night before, I'm like, okay, Devar, you have to take it. And I didn't. Um, <laughs> so like, I know I'm very aware of that, and I just can't figure out the steps to work towards fixing it, or, or I, don't, I don't like the word fixing it, but like trying to improve my lack of losing, <laughs> or not losing things. So it's or usually... not losing. I mean, I do those things that I forget. It's, yeah, so it's all connected to a certain midah. Midah is a character trait of Seder, right? Seder is being organized. So knowing that I have a tendency to forget, being self-aware, I will organize my day in a way that works for me in that sense. So whether it's writing a list, whether it's putting things in the same places, whatever system you create, it's, it's using your higher self to include the fact that you're like that, not judge yourself or, or feel bad about yourself or... Just say, I'm not doing that because I shouldn't forget. Some people say that, like, I shouldn't be who I am, so I'm not doing that. Well, that doesn't work because you are who you are, and the smart thing to do is to work with that. Um, and so, you know, again, time management, Seder and organization, all these kinds of things would be like the Mida, the character trait you would work with. Again, it's not a quick fix. Like, do this and you're solved. It's, it's working with. So it's, it's always working with the, with the issue. You know, and then I love the idea that sometimes people say, well, I don't know what I should be working on in my life. So they always read these like, books with, that talk about heroes and talk about you know, Siddiquim, righteous people. And um, I have a, had a Rav that I learned a lot of this kind of personal growth stuff, Musser, with uh, for about a year, Rav Lichter. And he said, if you want to know what you wanna, you're meant to be working on, look into your life because God's putting into your current life right now Situations for you to wrestle with and struggle with and grapple with, whether it be a relationship, a conflict, whether it be job issues, whether it be you know put people in the in the workplace not getting a job, getting the wrong job, you know whatever it is, look into your life because that's where the struggle is and that's where God is pointing and showing you this is what you need to work on. And people think no, that's just annoying. I should just fix my life, have a great life, thank you very much, and then I'll be free to work on what I want to work on. No, 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 that is the whole live workshop going on in your, is your life, right? Hashem is putting into your life the areas that you need to be focusing on through struggle. So it's an interesting idea that we maximize our potential through struggle, right? It seems like, what do you mean? I thought I'd just become great. You know, I can work on myself a little bit. I can read my, my workshop books. I can go to workshops. I can, but what do you mean? Like, it, it, I just feel there's a divorce between what our life is, and then all these other great personal growths, inspirational, you know, Brene Brown. I can happily watch the documentary on Netflix. It's wonderful. And, you know, okay, I'm sitting in my bed laughing at her because she's so cute and she says insightful things. And then I go to bed and it has nothing to do with my life. It was just entertaining and it was interesting and it was insightful. And it was, there were definitely some, like, inspirational moments and, like, aha, and I think she's wonderful. I'd love to meet her. But, like... That's not where I'm struggling. That's not where I'm growing. That's not where, you know, she gives a good insight as to maybe like, go down this path. She'll point to a path, you know, like go down that way. You say, oh, yeah. And then the next day, you might not connect, connect those things. So it's not that we shouldn't watch those, but that's not where the real growth happens. The real growth happens in your life. And, um, and it's interesting because the word for personal growth, one of the systems of personal growth in, in Torah is Musar, right? Musar, Musar, the Musar movement. Musar, if you look at the Hebrew, literally means sar is to turn. When I transform myself, when I turn myself into something higher, better, whatever, right? The mem at the beginning, Musar, 
is to do it to myself. So Musar is a system of personal growth where I work on myself to turn myself. Yes, that's what Musar literally means. So it's interesting because the word for suffering or challenge in Hebrew is Yesurim. Right? Yesurim. People look suffering Yesurim. Challenges, hardships. So Yesurim, if you break down the word in Hebrew, comes from the same exact root, Sur. Musar, Sur, right? The Yud at the beginning. Does anyone know what Yud at the beginning of a word, Hebrew word means? Isn't it like He. 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 Yeah, surim will turn them. That if, if sometimes in life we can't do it to ourselves, there's certain growth that needs to happen where I just can't, I just can't do it to myself. I just can't. Somehow it's not enough for me to do it and Hashem has to create a situation that the situation will do it. And yesurim literally means he will turn us or transform us. That the goal of any challenge and hardship in life is to bring out your greatness. Right, to bring out that. And as soon as you choose to do something better or work on something or become better, Hashem will test you in that area so that you make it yours. Right? The only way we can maximize our potential, the only way we can truly become great is if we internalize it. So how do I internalize these things? It's interesting. When I was in, in Israel learning, there was a blow-away class about evil. What's the root of all evil? Right? Jumping the other way. We're talking about righteousness and greatness and whatever, but the other way, the root of all evil. And really the word evil here is used loosely. I don't mean evil like, um, like Hitler. Right? I mean evil like people who do bad things. People who do bad things in life, but not evil people. There's a difference in Judaism. There's a category like called... Immoral. Yeah, immoral or things that are destructive. Right? But in Judaism there's a category called Roshoyim, Russia means evil person. It's a whole different category. We don't know usually any Rashoyim except like the, the shooter from, Cal- from San Diego, you know, was a Russia. Um, and we should do this in the merit of the learning. The learning should be in the merit of, of Lori. What's her name, last name? Lori. I have to look it up. K. Is, K. K. is it Lori K? Yeah. Lori K? Mm-hmm. My Wi-Fi is not on because I... Um, what is the root of evil? I'm just going to read this, this verse to you. In Isaiah chapter 2nd. Yeah. Isaiah chapter... Oh, I didn't say here. Um, I think it's... I don't know. Evil is like a storming sea, right? The quote is, evil is like a storming sea. And it's like, evil is like a storming sea. That doesn't sound so evil, mm-hmm. right? Rabbi Yeruchim Levavitz on this says that evil, evil people are not evil necessarily by nature. And when I say evil, I don't mean the Hitlers. I mean just regular people who do bad things. They're not evil by nature necessarily. They have a quality of being unstable, meaning they move wherever the wind takes them. So just like a storming sea, why is evil like a storming sea? Because if you look at a sea when there's no wind, it's like glassy and flat, right? The wind picks up a little bit and there's a bit of a swell. The wind picks up more, the waves start to get really high. And then if there's a storm, so the whole sea storms with the whole of the, of the weather. So evil people are like a storming sea. They move wherever the wind blows them, right? 
You say, how is that evil? Right? How is that evil? And it's interesting. There was a, a guy named Stanley Milgram, you may have heard of, who in the 60s was really bothered by how the Holocaust could have happened. How could the Holocaust have happened when the Germans at the time were the most sophisticated, refined, intelligent, put-together nation? They were like the Yales and Harvards. How is it that a whole nation kind of slid in their humanity to become serial mass serial killers? How does that happen? And he wanted to understand the psychology, so he did an experiment called the famous Milgram's Experiments. Have you heard of these? Yeah. And it's just really, really unbelievable. It's exactly what we're talking about, and it does relate to us. He basically put an ad in the paper at Yale, and he said that we're looking for subjects for this experiment, and we'll pay you $4 an hour or something. And they, they said, well, it's just a psych experiment, and you get credits and whatever. So people came, and they signed up, and they thought they were, they were being told that they're te being tested on memory recall. Right? You're being tested on memory recall. So they come in and they say, okay, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a participant, another participant in the other room. You're going to stay here on the outside of the room. And he can hear you through this speaker. And he's been memorizing word pairs. And he, they walk him into the room to show where the participant is. They ask him, you know, they, they, say, they, they show him the whole contraption that this guy is sitting in front of. And he's sitting in front of an electric shock, electric shock uh, machine contraption. Mm -hmm. And it sh shows that it's going up in voltages. Each button goes up in a voltage, like there's a button with different voltages, and it goes up by 15, you know, 15 volts per, in increments, up to 450 volts, which is enough to kill a person. And he is told that the person, the student in the, in the other room is learning word pairs, and if he's going he's gonna to tell him back the word pairs, and if he gets a word pair wrong, he's going to press one of these volts and give him an electric shock. And they put it actually on him at the time to show him like a, a mild electric shock, what it feels like. And he gets a shock. So he sees it's real. So he says, okay, are you, ready? are you ready to go? And he says, he's starting to look around saying, okay, this is a bit intense, but it's all right. And he says, there's the guy standing with him, introducing him, is the, is the, is the um, you know, like the, the authority of the experiment. And he says, like, you know, don't worry. You're not responsible for this. Our department is. He's wearing a white lab coat. He looks very author you know, authoritarian, and he says, you just have to sit here, and all you have to do is say the word, word, one of the word pairs back, and you'll hear if the other guy gets it right, and if he gets it right, leave it, move on to the next one. If he gets it wrong, I want you to administer this first shock, and if he gets the next one wrong, you're going to go up in shocks. To, and he's looking at him like, going, oh, okay, and uh, notice now the wind is blowing a gentle breeze, right? So all of a sudden, a little bit of pressure. He says, um, okay, and he's got a microphone. He's like, hello, hello, are you there? And the other guy says, yes, I'm here. He says, okay, you ready? Okay, we're going to start with the first word pairs. He says, just got an hour here. I'm going to get out of here. You know, and he says, okay, ready? Um, table. And he hears back, chair. And the answer is chair. He says, okay, good. And he says, yes. And he goes, okay, um, cat. And he hears back, dog. And he says, yep, good. Okay, then he says, fork. And he hears back, spoon. And the answer is knife. And it's wrong. And the guy standing over him, the experimenter, says, please hit the first switch. And he looks at him and he, he says, okay. And he, he presses the button and he hears, ow, from the next room. And he looks and he says, continue. So he goes down the thing. And as he goes down, he gets up and up and up. Apparently, there were recordings. What he didn't know was that this guy's an actor. Yeah. <laughs> and 
there's recordings of this guy screaming, blood-curdling screams from the other room. And at some point he's banging on the wall saying to stop. And the wind is blowing like a storming sea. What do you do in that situation? Now, we, we'd all like to think what we would do in that situation. But what would we really do in that situation? You really think it's an experiment. There's a guy in a lab coat who knows what he's doing. He's telling you to do it, and it's okay. And he's taking responsibility, not you. And somehow, morally, this does not feel right. And the pressure's on. They said that there was four lines of, defa- of, of words that they said to every single person. One was when they said, like, people protested. They say, he'd say, please continue. And they say, I think he's, hurt. I think he's being harmed. I don't, know if I, want to, I don't know if I want to continue. So he'd say, the experiment requires that you continue. Like, more, more wind. And if he says, no, 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 like, I really don't feel comfortable. He says, it's absolutely essential that you continue. Right? These are the same four prods verbal prods through the, every single experiment. And if he really, really said, I'm not, I don't, no, I'm not going to do this, it's not right, he'll say, you have no other choice, you must go on. This is like traumatic. Yes, Stanley Milgram was thrown in jail for unethical, yeah. for unethical experiment. experiment. Yeah, meaning it's, it's unethical, but like you do have a choice and he's not forcing you to physically and he's trying to put pressure on you. See, where, where's your morality? The irony is that I didn't tell you is that they sent out surveys six months earlier to all the psych students who were doing this experiment. And they said, they gave them a whole list of like what your values are, right? So people wrote what their values are. And at one point embedded in the survey, six months earlier was, would you ever harm an innocent person for the sake of a psychology experiment with an electric shock? And every one of them wrote, no. no. Six months goes by, everyone forgets the survey. It was one little question hidden. The same people are called back in, and there they are, electro- electric shocking people. That's the shocking thing. The shock, pun intended. The shocking, the shocking, <laughs> that was so not planned. Um, the shocking thing is that, <laughs> the shocking thing is that they really truly believe this was wrong, and they really truly overrode it in the moment. Because of authority. Because of pressure, because they, under pressure, we liked, it wasn't really theirs, that value. The value that they espoused they believed in was not really theirs. It wasn't internalized. It was an external value that they thought sounds nice, but they're not willing to live by it. They're not willing to be it. And really, when we talk about maximizing our potential, it's about being that change or it's about being and living that value. It's not just about knowing what you believe. It's about are you going to be faithful to what you believe? In the moment when the environment around you is pushing against you, when it's like a storming sea. That's what Isaiah is talking about. That's what it's about. Are you going to be faithful to that in that moment? When it's dark and it's scary and you don't know the next step and it's unknown and I don't know, are you going to abandon your values then? And at the end of the day, even the further irony in all of this is that there's nothing that makes you feel more worthless and lacking in all of your potential than betraying what you know to be true or what you value, right? When you betray yourself, it feels the worst thing in the world. When you stand up for yourself, even if it means someone else was disappointed, even if it means you created a a lid of tension, but you stood up for what you believed in truly, you feel a million bucks. You feel so good when you did something really hard and you didn't cave in, (coughs) or when you stood up for someone or something that you know is the right thing even with everyone like looking at you and judging you and whatever it is, right? 
that that's the moment when judgment and criticism and fear of rejection and pressure, especially for women, because we care so much more about relationships in a way, like we're so attuned to them in every nuance, um, is, is, is the hardest thing. That we often cave the most because of that pressure, that specific pressure. You know, for men, it might be more around success and money. I mean, you can't generalise because everyone has both, but there are tendencies. But, um, so you're saying that's pressure of being in relationships for Say again? You were saying the pressure for women is different than for men. We find that, yeah. Like, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Have you heard of this book? It's like yeah. went viral because everyone resonated with the right, different... So what's the exact pressure that women... Women is fear of rejection, usually. It's usually around social connection and, and wanting to keep peace and wanting to keep shal- like shalom with people and wanting to... They're very pe- more people-pleasery than men, generally. You can always have exceptions, but generally. Um, and for men, it would be more like the idea of getting ahead or, you know, maybe cheating things with money to get ahead or stuff like success and um, women can also for sure do that too but generally we see the tendency um, so okay here's a surprising statistic what percentage of people do you think truly lived up to their belief system or their value that they would not harm an innocent person for the sake of a psych experiment like what percentage of people do you think refuse to hit the first switch and electric shock a person for the sake of a no. correct zero no. none not even, one. not even one said I won't do the first one. And what this gets scarier, what percentage do you think went on to actually potentially kill the person in the other room by hitting the 450 volts that said warning danger of death on the machine? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow, you have no faith in humanity. Okay. Uh-huh. You're, you're saying 175. 30. 10, 25, okay, it was 65%. Oh. You went far. Yeah, 65%. Well, went to well, 450. Well, there's something I can endure, and the guy was telling them that what. If what someone was, just said to you, you have no choice, you have to go on, do you really feel like you have a, don't have a choice? What are you going to lose, $4? Right. What? It was what you're. I don't know, it feels like they'd be like, like, they're like, yeah. they're like, they're like, they're like, they're like, they're like, they're like, they're but who's this someone? It's someone you just met two seconds ago. They're not like, who cares? Like, well, wasn't it the 1950s? Like, 60s. 60s. I don't know. People are people, yeah. I was just blown away by that. So, so, so that's the question. The question for us How many people did the experiment? That's a really good question. Let me look it up. And was it both men and women? Um, what? Was it both men and women? Yeah, it was men and women. Hang on. Uh, let me see. 1963. Hang on. It doesn't say here for some reason. I'll look it up. It's, on, it's everywhere online. Um, okay. Happy birthday. Bye. Um, oh, wait. Oh, wait. One second. I think it was only... Oh, tw- it was 40 people. It was 40 people. Okay. So... So where does that leave us? That leaves us with the idea that there's certain things that we already believe in and we already know 
that that we already abandon because of some storming sea, right? Some pressure, some pressure, some environmental pressure, and whatever it is, especially if it's like popularity, being liked, wanting to fit in, not wanting to make waves, not wanting to create conflict, like all these things are the, usually the reasons that we'll just say it's too hard. I don't want to do that. I'll just leave it alone. I'll just, right? They're the reasons. It also can be, um, as I said before, sometimes Hashem will create an environment that won't be so conducive to whatever it is you've chosen because he wants to know whether you're going to own it, right? So the test of the storming sea is whether you're going to choose it no matter what because you had clarity at some point before that this is right for you and then he puts you in an environment where now it's not easy to do and it's not right for you, whatever it is, right? Are you still going to choose it? Because only then is it really yours. Only then are you being faithful to what you believe and then you've, you've shifted yourself. You've grown in some way, whatever it is. So for me, the obvious ones, just because I was from Sydney, Australia, which has hardly any Jews in it, I mean, definitely hardly any Jews who keep, keep the Torah, um, was like definitely changes along the way of Judaism. For keeping kosher, you know, those kinds of things were, were, the, were the hardest things for me. And I remember, I remember, by the way, and so just I'll put that on a pause. No, I won't put it on a pause. I'll just keep going. But um, I remember there was one time where I... Um, was coming back from Israel and I, I, we had one of those massive family barbecues. You know, we have every second, third cousin there and you forgot how you're even related sometimes. <laughs> and you have to ask someone, how am I related again? So one of those. And I hadn't seen some of these people in like five, six years. And in that time, I'd become observant. And uh, it's always really tricky because they don't really see so many observant Jews in Australia. They don't really know what that looks like. Or, you know, here it's like New York, you know, it's everywhere. <laughs> Um, and here is like tons of kosher restaurants there. There was two, you know, it was like, so we were going to this big barbecue and, um, and I was like, uh, keeping kosher. So I really wasn't going to eat anything there. You could eat fruit and vegetables, but like, I wasn't really going to eat so much. And I thought, oh, they're going to be offended. You know, no one else is observant in the whole extended family, not one person, right? Except my brother and I, it's a miracle. And I got there and I, I, before I got there, I texted someone who I knew would be like an ally for me. And I said, just let everyone know, just remind them I'm kosher. I'm not going to eat everything. It's okay. It doesn't, you know. And um, I was like, oh no, oh no. And I felt like the storming sea start, right? The sea start, the wind starts to blow. This is going to be uncomfortable. This is going to be difficult. It's just too hard. Like, why am I doing this anyway? That whole, right? That whole thing. It's just easier. Just maybe I'll just be kosher next week. And, you know, and, you know like that, like meaning I just become kosher. And um, it was really tough. And I thought, okay, this is, this is the test. This is the storming sea. This is it. I could do it. And I got there and uh, everyone's like, hey, hey, how are you? You know, whatever. And we're sitting down and we're eating and I'm not eating. They're eating. And um, everyone's kind of like that awkward, you know, the, the elephant in the room moment where no one said anything because they don't want to acknowledge it because they don't really think it's so good, but they don't want to offend me. So they're just being quiet, but then you can feel the tension. And uh, the one, this one six-foot cousin of mine comes over, who's older, like 65, who I don't really know so well, comes over and goes, so, in front of everyone, so, I hear you're, you're kosher, Jacqueline. <laughs> like that. And everyone went quiet and, like, locked, you know. I went right bright red. And uh, I was like, yep. You know, and, like, of course, and then he goes, that's just ridiculous. So you can't even eat anything? Like... You know, like just, just, just totally doesn't get it. 
And I was going bright red and I remember like now it's a storming sea, like the wind is for sure blowing, right? Everyone's looking and I'm just committing social suicide and this is just like all for just the fact that I won't eat the food, right, you know? And I said, I know, I understand, I, I can't explain it on one foot, you know, I get it, I, I've to- I do get it, like I used to feel the same way, you know, and I just said I can't, I, there's no point explaining it, right? There's no point explaining anything. And he goes, well, well, that's just ridiculous. And I said, I hear you, I get it, I can't explain it to you, whatever. And, and you know, when you, when you don't attack someone back and you don't justify yourself or have to prove anything right or wrong, like I'm right, you're wrong, you're right, I'm wrong, and you just hold your boundary and you risk them not liking you and it's okay if you don't agree, it's okay if you're disappointed, it's okay if, it's okay. Like, it's okay if we agree to disagree. And you just sit with it and you let them sit with it. Usually what happens is it becomes like a mirror in their face. And it's uncomfortable. So what was he, he was left to sit with the fact that I wasn't making him wrong and I wasn't saying I'm right. I just said, I hear you, but like this is the way it is, right? So he got very uncomfortable because now he's left to sit with his own dissonance inside that is either, we're both Jews, so either you're crazy or I might have to look at something in my Judaism. Right, so he doesn't want to, Most people don't want to do that, just as an FYI. So they're much more comfortable with making you crazy if you're doing anything more than them Jewishly. Mm-hmm. Anything, right? Any, even a little bit more than them, you're going to be the crazy one, so that they feel okay. And I'm okay with letting them feel and feeding into their delusion that that you know that they're they're, they're fine and I'm the crazy one. Like I'm happy to do that. I, I I don't have any agenda to make anyone do what I'm doing or to judge anyone. So. But what he was left to sit with himself. So he feels the urgency to tell me that, well, the problem I have with Judaism is... I'm like, I didn't ask you your lifelong problems with Judaism. I just said I won't eat the meat in the, in the barbecue, right? And like, they said, well, well, my lifelong... My problems with Judaism... The problem I've always had with Judaism... Like he's, he feels the need now to talk it out and like to explain and justify to me why he's not eating kosher. <laughs> I never asked him. I don't judge him. And he says, well, you seriously can't tell me that there's a God and there's billions of us here down on this planet and there's a God that really cares about what I think and do every day. Like he couldn't, he couldn't compute the whole concept of the fact that there's a God and he cares about my individual, my individual life, right? How is that possible? Because it is mind-blowing. And I realised it was such an emotional reaction. So I said, yes, isn't that amazing? You can't seriously tell me there's a God that cares about every single person. I said, yes, it's unbelievable. And he looked at me like in disbelief and I said, would you read a book? I felt a little, I felt a little bit like one of those you know, missionaries. And I pulled out a book from my bag that I actually do carry with me when I go back to Sydney because I can't get it there and it's quite good. You know, permission to believe, permission to receive. Like, and I gave him a book about permission to believe in God and why it's a rational, logical decision. And I said, would you read this book? Oh, I can't take your book. I'll get it. And I said, no, 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 please take it. And he took it. And then I found out seven, eight months later that he had cancer and that he passed away. And I didn't know. I didn't know he was sick when I was talking to him. And I asked his daughter, do you know if he read the book? And his daughter said, yeah, he did. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this man might have changed his whole eternity in the next world because he maybe changed his thinking that maybe he was open to the fact that there's a God and that would change your whole eternity and the next world just because I wouldn't eat the meat. Just because I stood up for something I believed in 
and just risked everyone judging me and it doesn't matter, it's okay. And then it shifted him to be open just because I was holding a boundary, right? So you have, and I felt, I can't even put in words the way I felt about that moment and that experience that now was the worst experience I thought I was committing social suicide became one of the best experiences that now I'm telling over in stories as, right? You don't know that in the moment that you're in it. It doesn't feel like that. It feels terrible. But they're the moments that you rise and that you shine and that you, right? They, they form you. They make you greater just to stand up for what you believe in. That's really, truly the way to maximize your potential. That's it. So whatever it is you believe in now, values, morals, always in the area of values and morals, right? It's not about standing up for Ben and Jerry's chocolate ice cream or vanilla. In those areas, stay true to your values. Live by them. In the moment, notice when something's not in sync with your values, right? That's really what, that's what we look up to in people. That's what you all admired in someone at the beginning of the class when we said, who do you admire? You admired their values. No one said, oh, they have a great, pretty skirt and they have a pretty this. And it wasn't superficial. It was deep. It was core. So it's how they live their life is what you value, right? So everyone says, I don't know how, I don't know how to become my best self. I don't know. I'm going to these workshops. Stop. Look into your own life. Look what Hashem's providing for you. Look at the areas that you struggle with. Ask yourself, what do I believe in? When something's happening around you, and just ask yourself, do I, is this right? Do I believe in this? Right? If it's not, let me, let me go into some sort of action whether it be to correct it, whether it to be to stand up for it, whether it to be to walk away. Sometimes it's about walking away, by the way. Sometimes people saying horrible things all the time about people. You walk away. Don't want to hear that. I don't want to align myself with that. Not judging those people, but just not, not condoning that behavior. All right? So let's do a little meditation.